Dallas, Texas, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. The assassination of U.S. President Kennedy 50 years ago remembered throughout America and California's Silicon Valley facing competition from London Silicon Roundabout. It has a lot of uh, support functions around, so good PR companies, good accountants, and then it's the, uh, it's the abundance of talent. This is The World with Tim Stackpole. Thanks for joining us once again. First to Silvio Berlusconi, that flamboyant face of Italian politics who has been expelled from Parliament. He told supporters to stay on after senators voted to force out the three-time Premier over a conviction for tax fraud. Al Jazeera's Barnaby Phillips reports from Rome. The Senate's decision was expected, but it's still momentous. Senator Silvio Berlusconi's election is declared invalid. Silvio Berlusconi and his supporters call this a coup, but the majority in the Senate say this is democracy, the laws of the land being enforced. Even as the Senate voted, Berlusconi supporters came out to cheer their man. The judiciary, dishonest politicians and traitors are on one side, but we are with Silvio and will always be with him. He's always been the master of media manipulation, but don't be fooled by the smile. Power is ebbing away from him. We are here in what is a bitter day, a day of mourning for Italian democracy. We must stay on the field. We must not despair if the leader of the centre-right is not a senator anymore. There are leaders of other parties who are not parliamentarians. Even from outside the Italian Senate, Silvio Berlusconi will still have a loud voice here in Italy. He's a wealthy man and he controls newspapers and television stations. But it's clear that his hold over Italian politics is not what it was. Angelino Alfano, Berlusconi's chosen successor on the centre-right, has broken away from him and now supports the government. That means Berlusconi has lost much of his power to disrupt Italian politics. The government will survive because the Alfano and his group have said that they will still support the government. The other thing is that most likely, even though he has been impeached, his capacity to rally troops and his supporters and voters will still be present and can still be used at the next election. And yet Berlusconi's legal difficulties are growing all the time. They include a notorious conviction of paying for sex with an underage girl. Many here talk about the end of an era. Silvio Berlusconi is not the kind of man to give up and fade away quietly. But from this day, he will be shouting from the sidelines. Barnaby Phillips, Al Jazeera, Rome. A new measure to encourage the teaching of the Swahili language in schools in Uganda is making less progress than had been hoped for. Teachers say only a minority of students show any interest in learning Swahili, despite it being declared Uganda's second official language. This despite concerted efforts to make it a common language in East Africa as the region deepens integration. Isabel Nakia reports from the Ugandan capital Kampala. In one of just a few Swahili classes in Uganda, the basics of the language are being taught. But student Gonza Raymond says it will take time to grasp. Spellings of some words disturb us and some pronunciation of words disturb us. 
the Swahili teacher Hadija Nantale concedes there is a general lack of interest in learning the language. The, the students themselves feel shy to speak the language because they feel ashamed or they feel they're not they, they don't have vocabulary and because the, the Kiswahili part of our school is dominated by foreigners, they don't feel okay. But lessons like these will be made compulsory in the next academic year. The East African community is moving towards better integration and Swahili, which is widely spoken in the region, is being promoted as the unifying language. East African Community Commissioner Rona Sorada hopes Ugandans can overcome their historic doubts about learning it. All the wrongdoers, the thieves, always spoken Swahili. So the people, I think, didn't want to pick it because of that very reason. But I think we need to put that in the past and know that this is a language, it's a very good language, and it's going to help us as Ugandans to move and to do business with fellow East Africans. Plans put forward by Uganda's government will require all children to learn Swahili at school. And while there are currently hundreds of local dialects in use, the government hopes it can help the region unite around one language. Isabel Nakiria in Kampala. The tech sector in London is growing increasingly dominant. Startups as well as big players like Google, Amazon and Microsoft are setting up around East London's Old Street Roundabout, earning it the name Silicon Roundabout. The sector is expected to become increasingly important to the British economy, as Natalie Fury in the UK found out. Startup company Depop is building an app which enables users to set up an online shop at the click of a mobile phone button. Depop was founded in Milan, but is among the huge number of tech startups that have flocked to East London's tech city. Runa Rystrup, chief operating officer at Depop, says the company was weighing up the options of going to Berlin or London before deciding on the latter. It has a lot of uh, support functions around, so good PR companies, good accountants, everyone gets the kind of startup eco economy that's important, and then it's the, uh, it's the abundance of talent. Just next door is Google Campus, where tech entrepreneurs can get advice, attend workshops and network. Government initiatives are playing a significant role in helping startups get off the ground. These include tax breaks as well as entrepreneur visas. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, has pledged £50 million of investment for the area in East London known as Tech City, part of which will go towards building a tech hub by 2015. But raising money remains a challenge. Investors in the UK are still seen as much more risk-averse than their counterparts in the US. So they're being given incentives, says Steve Karminski, the founder of technology investment firm City Meets Tech. Investors get 50% off their income tax and up to 50% off their capital gains tax in the same year. So if you're a high net worth, um, you obviously can, if you, you're allowed to invest up to £100,000 a year into startups, and the, the government's writing 64% of that in the same year that you invest. And as London's tech hub booms, companies are taking notice of the advantages Silicon Roundabout offers over Silicon Valley in the US. Oliver Smith, commercial director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa of media company Unruly, says there is no better place to be situated for those working with major global brands. We're quite often on the phone to Singapore in the morning and then uh, taking calls from San Francisco and so on in the evening. Um, and so it's a very logical place for a lot of global companies to do business and organise their marketing communications. 
Cisco, Microsoft and Amazon are among others setting up shop in the area. The tech sector in the UK is performing so well that it is becoming a major driving force for the British economy. Rob Harbron, a senior economist at the Centre for Economics and Business Research, has dubbed the tech industry the flat white economy because the drink is so popular in cafes in the area of London where digital companies are based. We've seen employment in central London in this sector, which we call the flat white economy, booming to around uh, 160,000 jobs, up from about 90,000 jobs 10 years ago. The rate of growth has far exceeded financial services in particular, which took a massive hit during the downturn 2008-2009. And it's also been growing much faster than business services as a whole, sort of traditional accounting, that sort of thing. Harbron predicts that the flat white economy will grow at twice the rate of the once dominant financial sector over the next five years. The city of Dallas in Texas has commemorated 50 years since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, an event that stunned Americans and the world. A moment of silence and the tolling of the city's church bells were part of the ceremony marking the anniversary, simulcast on screens all over the city. President Obama laid a wreath on his predecessor's tomb and held a dinner in his honour as Lorna Shattuck reports from Washington the killing of America's 35th president on that fateful day changed the country and created an icon. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. It was with those words exactly half a century ago that CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite told America that President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Several thousand enthusiastic Texans are on hand to give the President and Mrs. Kennedy a warm welcome. A local radio reporter earlier that day had described how the young leader and his wife Jacqueline had arrived in Dallas to cheering crowds. With elections coming the next year, the pre-planned journey from the airport into the city by motorcade was designed to maximise the first couple's exposure to the enthusiastic crowds who thronged the route, with Mr Kennedy later planning to deliver a speech in a state seen as key to his ambition of winning a second term. But as the motorcade passed the school book depository, shots rang out. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The motorcade sped away. Bystanders took cover. The security team reacted, but it was all too late. Journalists and listeners alike struggled to comprehend the news. The President of the United States is dead. President Kennedy has been assassinated. It's official now. The President... The loss of such a charismatic leader left young and old, black and white, weeping openly in the streets. A friend of mine came bursting out of the door yelling, the president's been shot, the president's been shot. That's Christopher Arterton, a professor of political management at George Washington University, who was a student at the time. He says the killing fixed Kennedy forever in the nation's memory. We didn't see him grow old. Having him cut down in the prime of life really has made him into much more of an iconic figure than he would have been if he'd lived. All of the promise uh, of, quote, Camelot, and uh, bringing the best and brightest to Washington, all of that seemed to disappear in an instant. Kennedy was the first U.S. president born in the 20th century, and that promise that he brought is still something Americans look back on with nostalgia, according to presidential historian Robert Dalek. People in this country, they want to feel good about a president, and they want to feel that he promises them a better future, and Kennedy still gives that to them. 
It may be 50 years on, but it seems by marking this anniversary, many Americans are still mourning the death not only of JFK, but the dream he represented. Lorna Shaddock, Washington. Officials at the United Nations say after years of violent atrocities, the Lord's Resistance Army and its notorious leader, Joseph Kony, are gradually losing strength. Political instability in Central Africa has helped the rebel organisation as it continues to recruit child soldiers, but African Union troops are slowly closing in on the group. Nick Harper reports from the UN headquarters in New York. The United Nations estimates in the 25 years it's been operating, the Lord's Resistance Army has abducted more than 66,000 children and killed more than 100,000 people. Briefing the Security Council on the situation in Central Africa, the head of the UN Regional Office, Abu Musa, said recent regional instability had helped the rebel organisation. The group remains a serious and unpredictable threat to communities throughout the sub-region. But he said the 3,000 African Union soldiers tasked with hunting down the LRA had made good inroads. Regional task force contingents are now fully operational. Military operations have degraded the LRA and limited it to pursuing survivor tactics. The 2012 video about the LRA's leader, Joseph Kony, brought him to the attention of the wider world, with the video viewed online more than 98 million times. He formed the Lord's Resistance Army in the late 1980s, proclaiming himself as a prophet with the aim of overthrowing Uganda's government. Since then, driven out of Uganda, the LRA has continued its reign of terror in the remote regions of Sudan, South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Central African Republic. But with the LRA currently comprising of just 500 people, the feeling is now it's the time to finish the job of destroying the organisation. As the UN alternate representative of the US, Ambassador Jeffrey Dilarontis explains. We are in the midst of a pivotal moment in the Central African region. We have a real opportunity to save countless lives and help to usher this region toward the stability and prosperity that its people deserve. But instability in the Central African Republic has complicated the search for Kony. The rebels who ousted the government in the recent coup temporarily banned the African Union troops who are searching for the LRA. The American anti-LRA organisation, the Resolve LRA Crisis Initiative, is trying to end the atrocities. But founder Michael Puffenberger admits the countries where the LRA operates have more immediate, pressing problems to deal with. In Congo, we've seen the upheaval in the Kivus. In Central African Republic, we had a, a recent coup there uh, that overthrew the government. And in Sudan and South Sudan, you have ongoing border tensions. So it's very difficult to, to maintain a level of political attention and resources towards these areas when um, it's not threatening the states themselves, it's only threatening civilians. And as Puffenberger explains, the US government is helping, but progress is slow. We've sent about 100 US military advisors who are out there working with their African Union partners, uh, and they've been out there now for, for, for two years. Um, and I think they found that the problem is harder than they, than they anticipated. Working in this region is extremely difficult and complex. But the tide could now be turning. There are rumours Kony is ill and the number of fighters defecting from the LRA is increasing. The new CAR president, Michael Jatodia, is also said to be in communication with him, as the African Union envoy on the LRA, Francisco Madeira, told reporters. He has tried, has been in contact with, with Mr Kony, has, his people have been in contact with him and that they want to entice, to encourage him uh, to surrender. 
definitely he's no longer in peace and he's feeling the pinch. But for now, the abductions and atrocities continue and Joseph Kony is no nearer to being found. His exact location is not known and the African Union and United Nations admit he could be hiding anywhere within four different countries. Nick Harper, New York. This is The World with Tim Stackpool. After three years of research, planning and testing, a youth organisation in London has won planning permission to create two small communities of converted shipping containers, known as MyPads. The containers, originally from China, have undergone a high-tech transformation to ensuite studio apartments, which will be stacked two on top of each other. They were created to solve an acute problem in London, the lack of affordable homes to rent, which keeps young people in particular out of the jobs market and trapped in a cycle of poverty. Natalie Powell went to take a look around. From the outside, they don't look like much. In fact, what they look like are painted shipping containers stacked on top of one another. But inside, it's a different story. They are the product of three years of research and testing, a simple but high-tech home for one person, comprising ensuite studio apartment facilities, small but perfectly formed. The transformed cargo containers, called MyPads, are the brainchild of one man, Christopher Payne, the CEO of London's Walthamstow Forests YMCA youth charity. The price of accommodation in this part of London means that you can't afford it if you're on minimum wage. And so it was trying to find something that would bridge that gap, that would be a stepping stone between living in a hostel and getting into the private rented sector. 550 young people come through the doors of the YMCA in the Walthamstow area of London each year, needing help, support and accommodation. But once on their feet, their experience in the private rental sector can be a shock. Private rents in the capital are soaring, up almost 5% year on year, and now stand at an average of £1,100, the equivalent to US$1,800 per month. The MyPads have been designed with low energy costs and will be rented out at £70 a week, around US$100. The total cost for one of these studio apartments is £20,000 and these shipping container homes could last for over 10 years. Figures the YMCA says is cheaper than one year of supporting someone on housing benefits. Young people like Louise Stevenson, who are being helped by the YMCA, are impressed with the MyPads. I think it's amazing. Got everything you need in here. It's warm, it's comfortable, but everything's new. You've got a TV, you've got your cooker, you've got a fridge, you've got your shower room. You've got everything really, so I think they're amazing. From the outside, yeah, you might think, oh yeah, it's a shipping container, but inside you just feel like you're in a nice hotel room or a nice self-contained living quarters. But not everyone has been so welcoming. The council, which approved plans for two developments, remains cautious. It says it will watch the progress of the MyPad developments with interest, but the council does not see the use of shipping crates as the answer for the 21,000 people needing accommodation in this London borough alone. And Christopher Payne, the CEO of Walthamstow Forest's YMCA, agrees with them to some extent. I fully accept that shipping containers like these are not the long-term solution, but we face a crisis at the moment that's on a parallel with after the Second World War. But it is a solution that's prompting a great deal of interest, not only from London's other boroughs, which face similar housing needs, but also internationally. 
raising the prospect that this experiment could one day be seen further afield. Natalie Powell, London. This is the world with Tim Stackpool. Delivering food to survivors remains a priority nearly three weeks after Typhoon Haiyan caused widespread devastation in the Philippines. That's according to the World Food Program, which has airlifted tons of rice and high-energy biscuits to the country. WFP and other agencies and their partners continue to support the Philippine authorities as they work to get millions of people back on their feet. Deanne Penn reports. The World Food Program reports significant progress in dispatching food aid to all affected areas in the Philippines, whether by land, air or sea. So far, the government has distributed more than one million family food packs containing rice from WFP, reaching an estimated five million beneficiaries. WFP spokesperson Elizabeth Beers, who briefed journalists in Geneva on Tuesday, says some hard-to-reach islands are receiving food assistance for the first time. We also have a ship with 2,400 tons of humanitarian aid, which arrived yesterday, Monday, in Tacloban, carrying tents for families, tarps, and jerry cans on behalf of the entire humanitarian community. This boat will continue to make the trip between Cebu and Tacloban over the coming days, bringing the relief items that we need. Meanwhile, the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, is helping the authorities to move people out of churches, stadiums, and other public buildings where they had sought shelter ahead of the storm. Even though many have since left, it's estimated 240,000 people are still living in these evacuation centers. Adrian Edwards is the UNHCR spokesperson in Geneva. These centers are often overcrowded. Many families are living in very confined spaces. There's limited water and sanitation. No privacy and tensions in many areas are rising. These are public buildings. They're clearly not meant for the long-term stay and the situation at present isn't sustainable. Edwards says the decongestion efforts are being done in conjunction with humanitarian partners working in areas such as camp coordination and camp management. We're also working to ensure that displaced people are consulted and that alternatives proposed are as safe and dignified as possible. In Takloban, the city hardest hit by the typhoon, thousands of young children are being vaccinated against measles and polio. They're also being screened for malnutrition and receiving vitamin supplements to protect them from infections. The campaign is being carried out by the government with support from the World Health Organization, WHO, the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, and other partners. UNICEF says with disease a silent predator, the children of Takloban need all the protection they can get right now. For most of their lives, 12 fishermen on the Tamil Nadu coast in South India have lived like slaves. Every one of them was in debt to moneylenders. They, in turn, had inherited the debt from their fathers. According to Joanne Leverton of the International Fund for Agriculture Development, it is an intricately corrupt system. The moneylenders, the local traders and village lenders are all in cahoots, ensuring that it was impossible for the fishermen to ever pay back what they owed. Here's Joanne's report on liberation from debt bondage or slavery, as the fishermen prefer to call it. Bharati Dasan inherited a debt of 50,000 rupees, about $800. After spending a minimum of 12 hours at sea, he had to hand over his entire catch to the moneylenders to service the debt. 
it was impossible to ever pay off what he owed. We were in a difficult situation. We even shed tears. Even though we were going to sea, we didn't have a happy and peaceful life because on the shore we didn't get a good price for our fish. And in 2004, this difficult situation was made even worse by the tsunami, which destroyed Bharati's boat and nets. He and his wife, Doga Lakshmi, could see no way out of the cycle of debt. We didn't have money for our expenses, so we borrowed more money with interest. When our child fell sick, we had to take her to the hospital. We didn't have the money, we had to borrow it. This is suffering. Then three years ago, Bharati's neighbor Murugayan Manivanan heard that fishermen in a nearby village had formed a group called a fish marketing society, through which they collectively paid off their debts. He went to see how it worked, and when he returned, he convinced Bharati and 90 others to join him. As a group, they finally had some bargaining power, and they convinced the village leaders to help them open up the sale of the fish to the highest bidder. When this happened, the corrupt merchants left the village. The next step was to clear their debts of the moneylenders. To do this, they found support from a local project, which was actually set up to help fishermen recover from the tsunami. So the project, with support from the UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development, gave the fish marketing societies a lump sum of money to pay off the members' debts. Although they still need to pay back the money, the societies have appointed their own auctioneers. So every day numerous merchants buy to purchase the daily catch. Bharati's neighbor Murugayan Manivanan. Previously, we were like slaves. Now we have freedom in selling. Everybody has this feeling. Now we're getting a good price for our hard work. And it's only possible due to our unity. So far, the project has worked with more than 30 fish marketing societies, releasing over 1,100 fishermen from their debt to the moneylenders. With more societies set up each year, fishermen all along this coast will soon share Bharati's feeling of liberation. Joanne Leverton reporting there. And that is The World for this week. And just to note that after two years of broadcasting, this program will cease at the end of the year. It's disappointing news, I guess, but as always, a new year brings new challenges as well as new opportunities. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about the program, don't forget you can keep in touch by visiting www.theworldradioshow.com where you can connect with our Facebook page and comment on any of the stories raised in the program. For the next month, the world will continue to remain committed to bringing you the issues affecting the people of our planet, either on a mass or individual scale, and we hope to do so with balance and integrity. I'm Tim Stackpole, and on behalf of all our contributors right around the world, we look forward to your company next time. Until then, bye-bye for now.